Can you hear me? Yeah. Loud and clear. Good. So, um, today I'm going to talk to you about the authenticity of the Bible. I've got about half an hour, so there's loads to talk about. Um, but I just, uh, in true, as Karen said, in true my style, I want to cover three things. What is it? What is the Bible? Uh, how can we trust it? Like, why is it reliable? And uh, why is it relevant? But, um, I, knowing, what, not, knowing what we're like, I don't know about you guys, when I go to hear someone speak about something with lots of history and loads of facts and stuff, I find it really hard to remember it. Um, and so I thought I'd try and help you a bit like um, some people did for me, which is just to give you like a visual cue to help you remember and solidify some of the points. So, as you guys know, I like coffee, or well, some of you know that. I went, got, went to Brickwood on my way here, and I needed a bottle of water. And the guy was like, ah, oh, this is water. But I suppose, I mean, apart from the fact that he told me this is water, I mean, how do I know it is? I mean, he could have given me a bottle of vodka. And uh, obviously the impact of that would be quite severe. So, so, so there's a few ways you can do it. Well, I can look at the label and it tells me there's Pembrokeshire bubbly spring water. I can uh, look at it and it kind of appears to be water. I suppose I can test it. I don't have a litmus paper, but I could put a litmus test paper in it. And then I could taste it. And that would probably help me. And the same I think is true uh, with the Bible to some extent. So, so I'm going to kind of just use that as we go through to help you try and remember. So what, um, what is it? Well, the Bible isn't one book, but it's 66 books. And uh, it's kind of split in two halves. One is uh, in Hebrew, the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible, which um, Jewish people still use today. The other part is the New Testament, and uh, that's written in ancient Greek, or at least originally was. And it's not written by one author, but several authors. So some of them were fishermen, so the Gospels were written by some fishermen, a tax collector, um, a doctor. Um, also, we have, like Paul writes, he was kind of from a, a sect of the day, a religious sect, so he was a Pharisee. So uh, he was on a Jewish religious sect. And in the Old Testament, we had some prophets who wrote. We had a king, King Solomon. We had King David. Uh, we had multiple different writers, from really high up as a king all the way down to uh, like fishermen. So it's written by loads of different people. How was it written? Well, back in the day, like, when they started, Moses wrote some of the Old Testament, he would have written some on stone. So like, the Ten Commandments were written on stone. Uh, and then uh, they moved on to clay. Now, as you can imagine, the problem with stone is, if you, if you take, bear in mind, there's about 800 chapters in the Old Testament. Can you imagine me walking along with my barrel of like, 800 stone things? It wouldn't be that practical. So over time, uh, fortunately, it evolved. So they then moved on to things called papyrus. Which was, um, which was basically like a plant, they'd chop a stem and strip it and then um, put it into like a, uh, like a crisscross kind of shape and smash it down and the sack would then hold it together into like a page so they could write on it. And eventually they moved on to um, like leather basically, so they write on leather parchment. Obviously that is the, the most effective because it lasts the longest and it's reasonably light so you could actually make a long scroll. And they would basically sew all these bits together. So that's a bit about how it, how it was um, held together. So a bit more about what it's about. Well, it's, it's written by loads of authors, but actually the Bible that it says itself is that it's written by also one author. Um, and you could argue it's like an architect or the, the vision, the inspiration behind the whole thing. So none of these writers knew they were writing as part of this massive anthology. They just knew they were writing a specific message. And uh, in the Bible it says, in 1 Timothy, it says, all scripture is God-breathed. In other words, it's, it, the Holy Spirit inspired it. So all these different people were inspired to write in different times, in different styles and languages. 
Um, and the, the kind of concept is that the Holy Spirit guided them in their different times, and he always had this anticipation of a big message. And the great thing about it is they wrote in their different styles. So some of them uh, like were quite sort of comedians. They write in a, a funny way. Some of them wrote historical bits, which is obviously really important. Others were poetic. So the Song of Songs is obviously a poem about love um, and sex and loads of things like that. Uh, and so there's all sorts of types of literature, but they're also written in loads of, uh, in loads of different styles. So that's the great thing is that he doesn't sort of say, well, you have to write in this language. He doesn't say you have to keep to this style. But actually, it's a mul multitude of styles. And for that reason, you have to read them slightly differently. So you wouldn't, in the same way now, as you read, wouldn't read like, Alex Ferguson's biography in the same way as you would a, com like a, sort of a comical book or a self-help book. The same is true when you're reading the Bible. So don't read Genesis in the same way as you would a gospel. So that's, uh, hopefully that's a helpful kind of account of what it is. What I want to talk about a bit later is well, that, that unifying story. So, um, so I said about the water, like it, looks like it, um, it, it looks like it's water, and it does, the label says it is. So kind of in Timothy, it says it's God's word, and it's um, breathed and inspired by him, but it also feels like it is. When you read it and you taste it, it also, there's one unifying story. So I'll touch on that in a bit. But one, I, quick, I quickly want to help you see, why, why can we trust it reliably? Um, and I think it's a big question, because if it's all unreliable, we're wasting our time, we may as well go down to Brickford and get a few more copies. <laughs> so, um, cue slides, thanks. So, this is, uh, <laughs> this is Jesus. Um, so Jesus obviously in zero in time. So obviously, those of you familiar with BC and AD, anti-domini, uh, it's not after dominoes, it's, it's <laughs> actually, um, it means after the year of our Lord. Um, so, the year of our Lord being Jesus, and BC is obviously before Christ. So, the problem with the Old Testament is it's, we're talking like the extremes of ancient history. So, like, we're talking three and a half thousand years ago to up to about two and a half thousand years ago. Quite a long time ago. But what is great about it is we know, um, we know that the, the Old Testament was one entity for a couple of reasons, um, even before we got to Jesus' time. And one is these... these um, Translations here. So the Septuagint is a Greek translation that was done by um, by some a Jewish sect in that time. And what what that tells us is the whole of the Old Testament in Hebrew um, translated into Greek, and the only book that's missing is Esther. So what that tells us is even that time before Jesus came, there was the entirety of the Old Testament. It was one entity, and they all knew that or believed that was Scripture. The Dead Sea Scrolls, another historical piece. That's basically. It was, it's almost like stumbling uh, across Wandsworth Library, like in thousands of years. They stumbled across these Dead Sea Scrolls, and it was, um, again, a Jewish um, sect who had buried all these scrolls, and it was, um, well, I'm actually sorry, they hadn't buried them, it, they'd been buried when they, they had died, but they'd hidden them during the Roman times, and it gave you an insight into what they believed. So you had the whole Old Testament again, then you had psalms and songs and commentaries on it, uh, and so... Again, we see that, that the whole thing was together. Uh, and similarly, the Aramaic translation. So that there was another group who were translated to Aramaic. Aramaic, for those of you don't know, is the kind of language, the colloquial language of Jesus' day. So, um, so we had evidence. The second reason is Jesus like, and the New Testament, they, loads of the people in the New Testament quoted the Old Testament, so they often spoke about it. Um, and for that reason, I want to zoom in on the New Testament, because actually, those of you who've been doing Alpha or you know of um, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the reason for, is kind of summarizes everything, but also it stands and pulls on him. 
So if everything that's written about them is a waste of time, then again, we may as well just head off and call it a day. So for that reason, uh, yeah, thanks. Looking at the New Testament, it's a lot easier to look in history because obviously some of the parchments survived longer. But it, it helps us. If the New Testament historically is accurate, then you then, you then go to the question of, well, is the content reliable? So there's those kind of two questions. So historians and scholars of uh, today, they, uh, they look at two things, like how, um, how many copies of a classical work are there? And, uh, and the second thing they look at is how far, or in other words, what's the time elapsed between the first, the original, which is called the autograph, and then the, uh, the copies we've got. So if you compare it to some of the ancient, uh, other ancient history stuff, you, you've really got, um, in terms of time difference between the original and the copies, you've got the lowest, like the shortest period of time in the Gospels. And actually, the earliest, which is a large fragment from the Gospels, appears even like less than 100 years after they were written, so in AD 30. In terms of full, it's about 300 years. But generally speaking, it's, it's, far, and, um, it's far shorter, the, the period, which means that, that it's more likely to be accurate. And then, if you, um, and then looking at the, the number of copies, I mean, thousands versus a few, it's, it's just staggering. And I suppose, uh, to put it in context, there's a, I'll, I'll quote him so I don't do it injustice, but uh, there's a scholar called Gary Habermas, and you can, Habermas, so you can look him up, but basically he says, the New Testament is far more manuscript evidence for a far earlier period than any other classical work. There are just over, just under 6,000 New Testament manuscripts with copies of most of the New Testament dating from just 100 years or so after its writing. Classical sources always have fewer than 20 copies each, and usually date from 700 to 1400 years after their composition. In this regard, the classics are not well attested. While this doesn't guarantee, uh, sorry, not as well attested, while this doesn't guarantee its truthfulness, it means that it's easier to reconstruct the New Testament. So what's he saying? In summary, he's saying, well, um, you can't guarantee it's accurate, but what he's saying is that in terms of its transmission from the original to what we have now, there's a high degree of confidence and accuracy. So you can have confidence when you read what you're reading now that it's, it's accurate compared to um, what they had the original. And part of that is that you can take your copy now, and if you happen to read uh, ancient Greek, you can go back to the originals, which are in the British Library and other libraries around the world, and you can compare them. And that's what scholars do. So the second question you've got to ask, well, okay, well, great, thanks Andy. Uh, it's historically reliable in terms of how, how it's transmitted, but they might have just made the whole thing up before they wrote it down. How do we know that like, they didn't just... Um, and this is quite a popular view, actually, is that people, the, the church manipulated the message, changed it, and then wrote it down, and that's how it carried on. But, so if, I just want to give you a, a few very quick reasons. The one is that they, were, they call out eyewitnesses in their accounts. So Paul says, Jesus appeared to 500 witnesses after he died. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if I said something was completely untrue and I called on all of you guys, you're not going to, be, you're not going to vouch for me if it's a load of rubbish. And, and actually, there's no, there were no eyewitnesses at the time who contradicted it. We have two um, eyewitnesses, one who was a Roman historian called uh, Tacitus, and the other one was Josephus, who's a kind of uh, Jewish historian. Both of them acknowledge some of, some of the facts. They don't talk about all of it, but they certainly talk about some. One of the other things is that the message is a bit counterproductive. Now, if I was going to make up a story, I'd make myself look pretty good, because that's what we tend to do. But if you look at the Gospels, like the disciples, like the whole way through, they just look stupid. They're really <laughs> slow, they just don't get it. And like Jesus is time and time again, he's getting really impatient. He's like, I can't, I just don't get it. 
And I just, like, I think as humans, we just instinctively, we would instinctively make ourselves look good. So for me, that's quite compelling. And I think secondly, if you were going to have a saviour, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't kill him off. Hmm. Um, I mean, that's the reality. Jesus did rise from the dead, as we know in, in the accounts. But it's not the, like, most, it's not the strongest way of conquering. Most people would relate more to someone who just came through, conquered all their enemies, and then, uh, and that's what most of our films do. It's like these, these great victories. Whereas he comes in weakness, he dies, and he rises again in victory, but it's not, it's not a, a classical kind of a, a strong message in that sense. So, the guy, so going back to the point about whether they just distorted it and used their power, you've got to remember these disciples, a lot of them died. 11 out of 12 of them died for what they believed. So again, it's like, well... If, if they were twisting the message, bear in mind they were eyewitnesses to Jesus, so they knew what they were saying it was either true or false. That bit's clear, because lots of people say, well, yeah, people die now for a lie, but actually they would know either way, either we're telling the truth or we're not, because they, they met him, they saw him, they lived with him. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, well, if they knew it was a lie, you get to the end and be like, actually, sorry guys, <laughs> let's not take it this far, it's all calm down. <laughs> Don't want to die, so actually I, I was just joking, it's not, it's not all true. But to actually die for it, then it's either they just died for a lie, which I just don't believe, or it's true. And um, the other, I suppose the other couple of things, that no one ever found Jesus' body. So again, it's like, well, it's one way to shut everyone up, is just to say, no, here you go, here's his body, he didn't rise from the, from the dead. So, um, so you're all just, you can all quieten down, thanks. So, you, so what does that all mean? And that's the big so what. I suppose it means two things. You can have confidence that your Bible, the message you have now, is still accurate compared to the originals. You can't be 100% sure, but there's so many pieces of history that we just, people assume. And scholars and historians are very comfortable with the New Testament. In fact, way more comfortable than with lots of other ancient history. And secondly, I think the evidence is compelling that they weren't lying when they, when they came up with a message or wrote it down. So that leads us on to why is it relevant, in the same way as why is water relevant for me. Uh, the thing about water is we all know that like, it, you need it to survive. And even now I'm a bit parched, so I'm having a bit of water. But with the Bible, lots of people, they've not read it or they don't know what it means, so, so it's hard to know why it's relevant. So I just want to quickly help you see why, why it's relevant. So um, when you think about what it's about... I think Jesus, Jesus answers that with, um, with, with one of his, the conversations he's having with people. So in John, in John 5.39, he says, um, These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. So what's he saying? He's like, all the scripture points to me, and by the way, I'm the way to get to life. Not me, Andy, by the way, Jesus. <laughs> and so and secondly, um, so, so the other thing is, he, when he rises again from the dead, he, uh, none, none of the disciples know he's alive at that point. They're all still mourning. They think, oh, it's all come to an end. Um, I think we had this amazing saviour and he died. So, so they're all pretty miserable, as you'd expect. And then he appears to a couple of them on the road, and they're telling him all about this Jesus. They're like, because they don't recognise him. They're saying, oh, have you heard about um, what happened? It was amazing. We thought he was going to save us, and then he died, and they were miserable. And he responds. He's like... How foolish you are, and slow to believe all the prophets had said. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So, he's kind of like, hi guys, I'm, I'm here. 
But, but I think what he's also saying is you've obviously missed the whole point of the message. And I think the reason is the people in the Old Testament, they were waiting for a conquering saviour. And when I mean conquering, I mean someone who would defeat their enemies. And, and that's what Jews are still waiting for today. They're still waiting for the Messiah to defeat their enemies. And I suppose, um, yeah, to, to be careful, I have to be careful what I say, but as part of that is, is linked to why there's issues in the, in the Middle East, because there's uh, the Jewish belief that that is their land, and then there's also, obviously, um, a group of Muslims who agree it's, uh, think it's theirs. So, that, so that's what they're still waiting for. And Jesus is saying, actually, no, what the Messiah was meant to do is different to what you thought. So what does he say there? He's like, he had to suffer before he entered his glory. And then he says, well, actually, if you look all the way back to Moses and the prophets, you'll see that it points to me. So he, he does two things. One is he helps us with our whole confidence thing again, because one of the bits I've left out is prophecy. So prior to Jesus even being born, going back to those, you know, those history documents I showed you, the Targums, the Septuagint, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, within them is the Hebrew Old Testament. So before Jesus is born... There's lots of prophecies about him. And I'll give you just a few, but they're so detailed that it would just be so hard to just... Uh, to, well, it's impossible. He can't decide where he was born, for example. And to manipulate all the prophecies to work with him is really tricky. So, very quickly, he was the Messiah. So it's said in the Old Testament, he, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. How do you choose where you're born? You can answer that. Um, he'd come from the tribe of Judah. There'd be a massacre at the time of his birth. A messenger would prepare the way, so it was John the Baptist. The Messiah would be rejected by his own people. He would be called the king, king of the Jews. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, which is what, um, what he was betrayed for in the end, by Judas. It would be used to buy a field. And then a couple of other ones, like really specific around his death. The soldiers would, um, they would cast lots for his, um, for his, his uh, belongings. They would cast lots and gamble, basically, to see who wins what he owned. They, that he wouldn't, his bones wouldn't be broken the Messiah. And that's quite a big one, because actually, uh, when people died on a cross, crucifixion, what they'd often do is, because they would be holding themselves up on the nails, uh, so they didn't suffocate, because it, that's how it worked, the Romans would break their legs so that actually they would die quickly. And Jesus had been beaten so much that he never actually did, they never actually broke his legs. The other thing was that they, there was a prophecy that he had had a side pierced, um, and again, his side was pierced in the accounts. So loads of prophecies, and that, they just, I suppose, help us see that how does a guy fulfill prophecies that were written 300 years before him, some of which he couldn't control. Um, so that's compelling. And I think the second thing he does is, uh, it's really around, he helps them see all the things that have been going on in the Old Testament and their relevance. Now, I don't have time to go into them properly, but I think there's two things. Moses, so why, why did he start with Moses? Um, I think the reason is, Moses was... If you know the story, he rescues his people from slavery. So the Israelites had gone, moved to Egypt under um, Joseph, and they were prospering there, doing really well. And then one of the pharaohs was like, actually, there's a load of um, Jewish people here. They're, they're growing too powerful and strong. I'm frightened of them. So he enslaved them. And against their will, they were enslaved, and they became basically his, his workforce. And the people cried out to God, and they, they were like... like were stuck saving and there was nothing they could do because they were slaves and God says I heard the cry of my people and he sends Moses um, and Moses rescues them so that's the kind of synopsis in about 30 seconds 
But what's, what's the relevance of that? And basically, the Bible uses this term slave, um, and it's used again and again. And in the New Testament, Jesus says, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And what he's saying is that we just can't help ourselves, that actually, uh, even Paul says it, who, who believes. He says, I, I, what I want to do, I cannot do, but what I hate, I do. And there's this constant battle within him. Uh, and so what Jesus is saying is actually, I'm the ultimate Moses. I will save you from slavery to sin. Why is that relevant? Well, again, the Israelites, they couldn't save, you can't save yourself as a slave. You're, you're captive. You're completely out of control. And, it, and people, we don't want to admit it now, but that's the reality of our state without God, is that we, we're slaves. We're sold as a slave to sin. We can't help but do, we rebel against him. Yeah. And I think there's something about that. It's just our inane, inbuilt desire to be in control and rule. Um, so if you tell me what to do, there's just something within me that goes, actually, I know better. I, this is what I want to do. And it's, it's around that with God that we, we kind of spurn his authority and we, we actually want to be in control. And for that reason, we're just slaves. So, God, so Jesus says, no, actually, the whole of the Old Testament points to me because one day the Messiah was going to come and he was going to set his people free. Um, and that's what he did. And part of what he was saying is suffering. He had to suffer. Um, and the reason, again, at that time, but the reason that he... He had sufferers to pay the debt. Um, and that, again, the Old Testament is full of, you might wonder, why is there loads of sacrifice in the Old Testament? And the reason is that justice needs to be done. So if I go and, if I go and murder someone, justice has to be done. And in our system, in our society, we're lucky that I would get put in prison if, if it works, if the justice system works. In the same way, every time we offend God, that, that punishment, justice has to be done. And in the Old Testament, there was kind of a picture that just wasn't perfect. It was that actually every time we as a people rebelled against him, what would happen is the high priest would have to get an animal and he'd have to put their our wrongdoing, our sin, on that animal. And then the animal would be, um, would be effectively put to death in our place. So everything would pass over onto that animal and we would go free. But it had to happen every year because it just wasn't sufficient. And I suppose it makes sense because like goat for a man doesn't really, like, it's not really a fair trade. Billy Goat. It's not, it's not really like it's innocent, but it's not. It can't replace man. So Jesus came perfect. So he was fully God and fully man, and he he took that place. So what he's saying though is he's like, well, I came to save them from their slavery, and I came to rescue them um, because of the ultimate sacrifice. So why 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 do we read the Bible now? What's what's the point? Well, the the answer really is is twofold. It's it's really. Because as we do, we get to know him. And that, what I've told you in 30, well, a few minutes, actually the depth of it, um, if, we, if we asked a, a Messianic Jew, so a Christian who is a Jewish, to tell us about it, they would have such a great depth of understanding because they would know all the prophecies that point to Jesus. And they would, I imagine that their, their worship would just be incredible because they'd be like, no, no, you don't see. Like, they would take you through the Old Testament and they just point everything that um, shows you him. But in a, in a much more simple way, it's, I think of a relationship. Like Sally and I, if, imagine if I was, um, if I was kind of a, I, I bought her loads of lavish gifts, I bought her chocolates, and I, um, I took her out for dinner, and we went on loads of dates. Imagine I just ignored everything she said. Like, so actually, Andy, I care, care about this, and I just completely ignore it. I'm like, that's fine, I, I love you, I'm doing all this stuff for you. Like, after a while, she'd, get, she'd be like, what? like, do you really love me, or would you listen to me? And, uh, and there's that, the Bible compares 
our relationship with God to lots of other relationships, so to marriage and also to kind of parent um, children. And none of them are perfect, which is why they use lots of them. But in that example, it's like, well, actually, sometimes I think with God, we're like, well, God, I'm going to worship you, and I'm going to do all these different things. And God's like, yeah, but are you, are you listening to me? Like, oh. and, and I think it's one of those things where you're like, well, what he cares about most is that, not only, as Carol was saying last week, it's communication. Mm. I think I've gone, I've run out of battery. Sorry, I'll just grab this. It's all right, this is chippy. <laughs> Yeah, so so often we we just, we do what we think God wants to do, and actually he's, uh, yeah, back to what Karen was saying last week, prayer is is a way of communicating with him, it's that relationship, and it all comes back to relationship. So if I just talk at Sal again, and I just ignore her, then she won't feel, not only will she not feel love, but it's probably not the most loving thing for me to do. And the same is true with God, and in his work, Jesus um, says it himself, which if we move on, thanks, sorry, I don't want to make you more stuff. Um, it, like, he, he tells us uh, the great commission, he's like, actually go and make disciples, uh, baptise them, but also teach them to obey everything I commanded. The reason he says that is because he's like, those who love me will obey me. And I think that's true, like, even in a marriage, it's not like I obey Sally, but if I love her, I want to do what pleases her, and it's true with God. But it's on a completely different level. So coming to like a parent um, kind of child relationship. Again, imagine like my parents, uh, when I'm younger, they're like, oh yeah, um, Andy, like, they put me to bed. They're like, you need to go to bed. Imagine I turn around and go, actually, um, what you find, mum and dad, is that science suggests that nowadays I should be going to bed about midnight. <laughs> so I hear you, but I veto and I'm actually, I'm going to bed when I want. <laughs> and that, I think, is, is a poor illustration, but one of what I think we often do and one of the reasons I think we struggle with God's word is because it, it's, I spoke partly because it's an entertainment culture, so we, so we just want to sit and watch a screen and kind of absorb. And actually reading like the Bible, is, it takes work, like, it's not easy. But I think the other reason is because it comes up right against us and sometimes it's like, whoa, uh, it challenges you. Like you read it and it's offensive at times. And the, the reality of that is, I want to I wanna kind of put a question back to you. If God, do you think it would be uh, right that God thought exactly the same as you, endorsed everything you thought, wanted to do, um, said and did? No. No. I think so. I wasn't actually. <laughs> it was rhetorical. It was just leaving. <laughs> but yeah, so imagine that world would be so messy. Like, if, if God was like, actually. Yeah, Andy, um, I hear all the things you want to do and the things you think, great, they're good. That'd be a frightening world. And, and then you multiply that by, then you've got ISIS, and then you've got everyone in this room, and all these different things. And the reality is, everyone's, the culture is moving, and society is moving, and everyone's view of what's right changes. And we look back at people from years ago, and we look at them as archaic. But before we get all kind of chronologically snobbed, snob, like snobby, like, think about in a hundred years' time, people are going to look back at us and go, you guys are okay. Mm. But the reality is, the Bible, Jesus tells us that he wants us to obey everything he commands. And the great thing about that is it doesn't change. Like, he is 
outside of time. And the other thing you've got to remember is, if he's a father, but a father who is perfect, he, he, knows, he knows all the latest research on when you should go to bed and all that sort of stuff. But more than that, he's like, actually, I love you, and he laid his, laid, laid his life down for you. So the reality of that is like, well, why would you not follow someone like that? It's not like he's a dictator who's forcing you to follow him. He's actually a God who laid his life down and freed you from slavery. So I just want to encourage you as you read the Bible, don't, don't zoom in on the things that you find difficult straight away. Look at the big stuff. And especially for those of you who, who are investigating, start with the big stuff. Like it all points to Jesus. He says it's about me and it's about me rescuing you. But then beyond that, he calls to obedience. And part of that is he says, go, go and make disciples. And to be a disciple means to follow him. Like, and if, if I turn from myself, that's part of baptism, by the way. If you're baptized, you go down into water as a symbol of death. So you're dying to yourself and denying who you are. You come up to life as a new person, as a new creation in Jesus. And actually what that means, you turn your back on yourself and you follow Jesus. Yes. It's not pick a mix. You can't be like, well actually, Jesus, I hear you on that one. I'll, I'll kind of take this and then everything else, you know, it's over there. Actually, he's like, I gave my everything for you. I laid down my life and I call you to give you everything. Yeah. And to summarize, Paul says, in view of God's mercy, Let's offer our lives as a living sacrifice. And it's that. It's like when you really get what he's done for you, then you're like, well, of course I'll worship and follow you. And we're not talking about just a, a father. We're not talking about a wife. Um, with all our imperfections, we're talking about a heavenly father who is perfect, who's created everything. And more than any of us knows what is right and wrong, knows what is good and what is bad and, and is pure. And so he calls us to follow him. And to do that, we need to hear him. We need to listen to his word. And then from that we worship and we obey and we live for Him. Mm. Amazing. Yeah.